G'day humans, welcome to the safe space for dangerous ideas. It's time for the mooch. The mooch. Is there a more dangerous conversation than to say to a man, uh, why did you go and work for that big fat idiot, Donald Trump? Uh, that's uh, that's uh, that's the premise of this conversation, really. Uh, the uh, the mooch, if you don't recall, was one of a revolving series of cast members of the Trump administration, and uh, subsequently has become well, even before the uh, the administration began. In fact, was probably the most valuable thing to global elites and to money people, which which is he was one of them who was a translator of Trump who straddled both worlds. He wasn't from Trump crazy land. He's a very successful business person. He's a financier. And most recently, he's now a crypto guy. He just got burned by Sam Bankman-Fried, the uh, huge crypto titan who turned out to be something of a fraud, uh, apparently. I mean, he hasn't been convicted yet, but the whole edifice, the whole house of cards that Sam Bankman-Fried had constructed collapsed and people were left without their shirts. But one of those those people is sort of Anthony Scaramucci, but it's also sort of hard to, to know whether or not he's complete. Like, what side is he on? Is he victim or perpetrator in the whole Sam Bankman-Fried thing? Basically, he and he was he's a bit of a mentor to Sam Bankman-Fried. The two of them were on top of the world together. Sam Bankman-Fried bought 30% of uh of Anthony Scaramucci's company and the two of them went on a a tour around the Middle East, uh a grand fundraising tour uh to raise 2 billion dollars for Sam Bankman-Fried. Uh, so that FTX could buy, which was Sam Bankman-Fried's crypto company that, col- that subsequently collapsed, so that it could buy distressed crypto. Then the whole thing fell apart. Now, Sam Bankman-Fried, who's completely broke, owns 30% of <laughs> Anthony Scaramucci's company. So we talk a little bit about that, but it's obviously not the main thing that I want to focus on uh, with this uh, with this guy. The main thing that I want to focus on is what the hell it was like to work for a person like Trump so let's just go back. It's so head spinning to remember those days of the early months of the Trump presidency where the whole White House was a revolving door cast of characters. Sean Spicer, remember Sean Spicer? Remember Sean Spicer on Saturday Night Live as played by Melissa McCarthy? That's Melissa McCarthy playing Sean Spicer, who preceded Anthony Scaramucci as the White House uh, communications director. He was succeeded by Hope Hicks after a tenure. Do you remember how long Anthony Scaramucci was White House communications director? Uh, of 11 days. 11 days. Here's how that happened. I literally want to just read to you how this all went down. It'll give you a better understanding of the subsequent conversation. On July 21st, 2017, President Donald Trump appointed Scaramucci, the White House communications director. The White House announcement of Scaramucci said he would report directly to the president rather than to the White House chief of staff, 
as White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer had. On the day that Scaramucci's appointment was announced, Spicer resigned, getting ahead of things so he can't be fired. Uh, The New York Times reported that he had done so after advising Trump that he vehemently disagreed with the appointment of Scaramucci. Trump's chief of staff, Rince Priebus, also had vehement objections to Scaramucci's hiring. On July 26, 2017, this is five days after Scaramucci gets the job, the journalist Ryan Lizer reported that Scaramucci called him to try to identify who leaked information about a meeting to the New Yorker. During the call, Scaramucci revealed some disagreements he had with Priebus and White House advisor Steve Bannon. Scaramucci believed the conversation to be off the record. During the interview and in a tweet immediately afterwards, Scaramucci said he had contacted or would be contacting the FBI and the Department of Justice, asking them to investigate Priebus for allegedly leaking his financial disclosure form to a Politico reporter. Scaramucci later deleted the tweet uh, and uh, the reporter stated publicly that she had obtained the information from the U.S. Export-Import Bank, in fact. Uh, On July 28th, this is now seven days after Scaramucci is appointed White House Communications Director. Gee, shit moved fast. Uh, Priebus's resignation as the Chief of Staff was announced. That's the person to whom the White House Communications Director is supposed to report, but Scaramucci was reporting directly to Trump. Priebus said that he had resigned the previous day. Also on July 28th, Trump announced that he had named retired General John F. Kelly as his new chief of staff. Three days later, on July 31, Trump dismissed Scaramucci from his role as communications director on the recommendation of Kelly, this is the new chief of staff, who wanted him removed because he didn't think Scaramucci was disciplined and believed Scaramucci had lost his credibility. In other words, Scaramucci had lost his credibility because this conversation that he had with the New Yorker journalist, uh, actually, was Ryan Lizard at the New Yorker? I'm not sure where where Ryan was at the time. But anyway, he had a a conversation with this journalist. He thought it was off the record. He threw tons of shade on Steve Bannon and Reince Priebus. And uh, that obviously was not a disciplined thing to do as the communications director. So the incoming chief of staff, Kelly, goes, Scaramucci's got to go. It's only 11 days into the gig. Trump goes, okay, out the door. Uh, As one of his first acts after being sworn in as chief of staff, Kelly reportedly invited Scaramucci to his office and told him he was going to be let go. An official White House statement indicated that Scaramucci will be leaving his post to give chief of staff John Kelly a clean slate and the ability to build his own team. Scaramucci's tenure of 11 days is tied for the shortest in history for that position. Uh, The other person being Jack Kohler, who in the Reagan administration lasted the same number of days, leading some commentators commentators to compare similarly short political position tenures in units of Scaramucci's. How many Scaramucci's did they last? It's a bit like, was it Liz Truss, the British PM, the English, the UK PM, who was, she was around for so long, they were measuring her, her tenure in the life of a lettuce. A lettuce lasts longer uh, than Liz. So that was the mooch, and I want to—I want you to listen to the very first and only press briefing that he ever gave in the White House uh, press room. Imagine that—you uh, know—that podium with uh, the insignia of the White House behind it and the American flag and so on. This is July twenty-first, uh, twenty seventeen. So this is less than six months into the Trump administration. Do you remember those early days? Do you remember the airports clogged with protesters? 
and Muslims trying to get into the country and lawyers trying to stop the Trump administration's uh, so-called Muslim ban or, you know, uh, haphazard ban on people traveling from, <clears throat> excuse me, particular Muslim majority countries. Do you remember like the rallies, the the women's march, everything that was going on? It was absolutely, if you didn't live through that when you were politically aware, it was unlike any administration in living memory. It was chaos and in walks the mooch. And uh, this is his first exchange. I think there's been at times a disconnect between the way we see the president and how much we love the president and the way some of you perhaps see the president. Uh, And I certainly see the American people probably see the president the way I do. Uh, But we want to get that message out there. uh, And uh, to use a Wall Street expression, there might be an arbitrage spread between how well we are doing and how well some of you guys think we're doing. And we're going to work hard to close that spread. And so I'm done. Andrew, I'll take the question. Yeah. Yeah. I'll get Andrew, to as many people as I can until she walks me. Okay. Sure. Two questions okay. for you. Number one, uh, what we have seen from this administration so far is the president being his own messenger very frequently. And that has caused, as you know, some struggles for the communication staff. How do you expect to get this White House back on track? Well, I'm going to take a slight issue with the question because I actually think the White House is on track. Mm-hmm. And we're actually, I think, doing a really good job. Well, I actually do think from a messaging perspective, because we have a whole list of things, and I, I didn't want to come out here with our list of accomplishments and start a whole advertisement infomercial right now. I really just wanted to talk about personnel movement and how we're thinking about things. But I, I think we're I think we're doing an amazing job. Uh, the president himself is always going to be the president. Uh, I was in the Oval Office with him earlier today, and we were talking about letting him be himself, letting him express his full identity. I think he's got some of the best political instincts in the world, and perhaps in history. If you think about it, he started his political ascent two and two two years and two months ago, and he's he's done a phenomenal job for the American people. So that's the mooch. Uh, big fan, big fan of uh, of the prez for at least 11 more days. No, 10 more days after that. Uh, as I say, we begin by talking about crypto because, uh, you know, most of his life, Scaramucci worked at Goldman Sachs. He was an investment banker. He worked in equities and private wealth management. Uh, he founded He's founded several capital management uh, companies and most recently was in bed with Sam Bankman-Fried, the now disgraced crypto king slash uh, perhaps alleged con man, who knows. Uh, Sam owns 30% still, I guess, of Scaramucci. Scaramucci's company. Please enjoy the one and only Anthony Scaramucci. I mean, let's just start with where you are now. What's going to happen to Sam Bankman-Fried's stake in your company? That's a really good question. I can only give you what I would like to have happen because I obviously don't know what will happen. Uh, but let me give you like the uh, a little bit of backdrop and a little bit of color. Um, we sold 30% of the company to Sam through something called Island Bay Holdings. They they purchased it for $45 million U.S. dollars. Um, there was no preferred interest. It was common equity. Uh, in the contract, uh, Josh, it said that he could purchase the remaining shares. Uh, actually, to be perfectly precise, he could purchase up to 85% of it. I was going to keep 15 uh, for $250 million. Uh, he had three years in which to exercise that option. So um, the long and short of it is he had no control of the company. He had no preferred equity. And so it's not really valuable to anybody to purchase it other than us. I'm interested in purchasing it. 
Uh, he fraudulently induced us to enter into that contract, obviously, because he's his reps and warranties of who he was and what he was were not accurate. And so that's called fraud and in the inducement in the United States. So I would like to buy that back for a fraction of what I sold it to him for. And can a court Have compel you, him to do that? Uh, well, actually, so what ends up happening is it's now in the bankruptcy estate, the trustees have this as an asset of the estate. Right. And now they can put it up for sale. Um, let's say they put it up for auction, as an example. It'd be very hard for somebody to bid on it because, number one, I have blocking rights on it. Um, mm. It's a minority stake, but you can't buy it without my express approval. Um, and even if you did buy it, it has no economic interest. You're just a minority shareholder of Skybridge. So you're not going to get paid out, no, no profits or anything like that. So so we'll have to see what happens. But my guess is a year or two from now, uh, they'll come to me and they'll give me the opportunity to buy it at a discount uh, because I'll waive my claim against the, the estate and my lawsuit against them for fraud. Now, you know, they'll make the claim, well, they have no assets, they're in bankruptcy, and so my fraud claim is specious. Uh, but my guess is a lot of Sam ass Sam's assets are actually bubbling up right now as we speak, you know, including his Bitcoin stakes and other positions. So it'll be interesting to see what happens over the next two or three years. If you're a bull on crypto, uh, I think the creditors of Sam Bankman-Fried may do better than people expect. Right. Is that good or bad for you, though? Because if they, if that actually if they have something to share, then does that work in favor or against your ability to claw back your thirty percent? Well, I, I I think it works in favor. I think that they're looking to get out of this thing as cleanly as possible. They know that uh, they had a fraudulent situation going on with me, and so they know that I've got an issue with them. And so I do think that. But you know, look, anything can happen. I mean, here's the good news: is I don't have to transact. I don't have to buy it back from them. They can try to sell it to somebody else. I can block it. Um, I can leave it exactly the way it is right now. And I wow. can go on and and grow my business uh, irrespective of the relationship with Sam. I could also fork the business and start you know, new businesses in a different entity if I had to. So, you know, listen, we'll see. I mean, you know, I, uh, I've been in bad situations before. Uh, this isn't the worst situation I've been in. How about working for Donald Trump? That was a pretty bad situation. <laughs> yeah, I want to talk about that. But so, just before so, we, you know, I, I, I'm a, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm, I'm tougher than I look. You know what I mean? <laughs> ah, you look pretty tough. I think I think people generally have an impression of you as being a tough guy, Anthony. Uh, the has some of the cloud around Sam rubbed off on you? I mean, has some of the shit uh, kind of got stuck to your so. shirt as well? What's? Yeah, no, I, 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 I think so. Yeah, I think it hurt me. No question. I think. Uh, you know, I've gotten a series of negative articles written about me and my association with him. I think some people have a tendency to revise history. I'll remind you and your podcast listeners that he was a darling of Wall Street. He was a darling of the political class in Washington. He was well received by everybody, including Gary Gensler. Uh, his mom was very close friends with Elizabeth Warren. Uh, he was perceived as a white knight prior to his downfall and the debacle that ensued. And so we have a tendency to revise history. Yeah, but I, think, to I think there is a difference, isn't there, Anthony, between being friendly with someone and sort of drinking the Kool-Aid and proactively going into a 30% deal where they buy a portion of your company and then you go traipsing around internationally on trips with them fun raising funds alongside them. That That's just worse optics. 
Is it though? I mean, isn't it worse for the people that gave it? He gave me the money. Uh, you know, I received the money from him. You don't think it's worth optics for a venture capitalist that uh, did due diligence on him, gave him several hundred million dollars of their money, and then had to immediately write it off to zero? <laughs> well, I it mean, certainly I'm seems a, like that person is more incompetent because they ended up <laughs> losing their shirt and I'm, you didn't. I'm, but the, I, but in, terms of, in, terms the, uh, around, in terms of going around trying to raise money from other people, I think that that's what I mean is bad optics. It looks bad to be standing to yeah, but I mean, you know, look, I'm, next I'm, to that guy I'm going, hey, give us your money. I'm obviously living under a blessed star because the trip that uh, you're talking about, the one that I made with him to the Middle East, exposed him. And so none of those people that we had talked to had uh, made any investments with him. And in fact, if anything, most of those people where I have multiple decade relationships with those people are actually helping me at this moment. You know, they're friends of mine and they recognize that, you know, people can be misled and there can be things that, you know, happen to people in life that are uh, surreptitious. I certainly didn't do anything surreptitious. I've lived a life of high integrity. And I, I think what I would tell your podcast listeners, if you have integrity, you will always have opportunity. And so I can't tell you the number of things that have been shown to me over the last six months since the SAM debacle. And Skybridge will go on and will be a different and in some ways stronger place as a result of what happened. But yeah, you know, listen, that was a, a bad situation. I don't, I don't sugarcoat things, Josh. I tell people straight up, mm-hmm. bad situation hurt me reputationally. Uh, certainly for people that do not know me uh, or, you know, I get a lot of haters cause I'm a nonconformist and I, that typically engenders a lot of hate. Uh, you know what tall poppy syndrome is, right? You ever yeah, heard of that, yeah, Josh? Absolutely. Well, that's so, an Australian you know, term. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I, I, I know what tall poppy syndrome is. The Italians call it the malocchio. And uh, I'm a big boy. I know how to take a punch. I also know how to give a punch. And, uh, you know, listen, I own my mistakes. I'm very open with people about what happened. I certainly wish I could go back and not have constructed that deal with him. I was speaking at the Australian Davos conference over the weekend. It was uh, two o'clock in the morning here in the U.S. <laughs> and, yeah, sorry uh, about being, a- sorry about the location of my continent. Yeah, it's, it's deeply yeah, inconvenient for me as so, well. It, it, it's all good, but uh, you know, I'm down. Da- I'm down there speaking, and this woman was basically on the stage. I was coming in on Zoom, and she was trying to explain to me how incompetent and stupid I am. And I very politely said to her, "Okay, maybe you could have said no to the forty-five million dollars." After looking at his audit and going into his data room and having your auditors confer with his auditors about his audited financials, and maybe you would have said no to the $45 million, but I didn't. And Mm. so, you know, but I'd like to see what you would really say if you were there in the moment where someone's offering you $45 million. Well, I mean, people are always going to, you know, I I think you're an easy target. You've always been an easy target, but just because you're a contrarian person who doesn't doesn't know any particular line. And so whether it's politically or economically, people are going to take pot shots at you because, you know, you you don't, you don't play their game. Yeah, Um, it's all good. I I don't mind. I know we're limited on time. Take me back to, here's a piece, here's a piece from the Washington Post, uh, July 21st, uh, 2017. Actually, uh, here it is. May 9th, 2016. That'd make, that makes more sense. Mm-hmm. 
Anthony Scaramucci, a high-profile New York investor and a leading fundraiser on several past Republican presidential campaigns, said Monday that he has signed on to join Donald Trump's nascent National Finance Committee. Scaramucci becomes one of the first traditional Republican bundlers to join the Trump campaign and commit to raising money for the party's presumptive nominee, who's struggling to unite the fractured party for the general election. This is before the general election, obviously. This is May of that year, when a lot of people didn't think the Republicans could win, well, certainly didn't think that Trump could win that election. What were you doing? What were you angling for? What's that play? Uh, well, I mean, I think I think you need more of the backstory. You know, I grew up in a blue-collar neighborhood. My dad was a crane operator. He was an hourly worker in a union. And so when I got out of Harvard Law School and joined Goldman Sachs, I didn't have the connections that some of my contemporaries had. And, you know, I never hit a golf ball, never swung a tennis racket. And I had to come up with a way to meet people. I was in the high net worth area at Goldman, the brokerage business. They gave me a desk and a telephone. They said, go out and find wealthy people and have them open accounts with Goldman. But I didn't know any wealthy people. So uh, my one entree into that, Josh, was politics. And so I wrote my first check in 1989. I was 25 years old to Rudolph Giuliani. He was running for mayor of New York. He lost that election. And that was actually pretty good news for me because him losing that election enabled me to spend some time with him, quality time. Uh, and when he geared up for the 93 election, I was a big fundraiser for him, at least at my age. Uh, and then he introduced me to Governor Pataki, and then I met George W. Bush, and then I met Mitt Romney. And so I was with Jeb Bush's campaign when Bush dropped out. Trump called to recruit me. I had known Mr. Trump through the New York charity circuit. I had attended a few Yankee games with him. I sat at the same table as him at some charities together. Uh, we had uh, we'd both worked at NBC. I was at CNBC. He was working at The Apprentice at the time. And so we had a very good rapport. Uh, I met him at Trump Tower. The uh, future ambassador to New Zealand, Scott Brown, who's a Tufts classmate of mine, hmm. uh, was in the meeting with me. Uh, and we talked to Mr. Trump about working for him. And I made a decision, rightly or wrongly, to stay loyal to the Republican Party and to work for Mr. Trump. Uh, there were only two choices in that campaign. I've been a lifelong Republican. And so I went to work for Mr. Trump. And you've Trump. been a lifelong Republican because there are all sorts of reports that you were an Obama supporter in Obama's first term and uh, that you were a Democrat up until basically the financial crisis. So so basically what, what happens to you when you go into politics, you get a tremendous amount of misinformation that is bled into the system and fed to people. Uh, some of that stuff actually came from opposition research from my fellow Republicans that didn't like me or felt somewhat threatened by me, particularly my direct relationship with Donald Trump. Remember, I built my own business, have my own money. I'm, you know, I'm financially independent. And so talked to Trump very candidly. I didn't kiss his ass like some of these uh, political operatives did. And some of those guys, uh, it's a very vicious sport, Josh. Some of those guys were trying to come up with opposition research and different negative angles on me. Never was a Democrat. I registered as a Republican in 1982. That was my 18th year of life. Registered for the draft and for the Republican Party. Been a lifelong Republican. That's 41 years as a Republican. In 2008, when I was less involved in the national political scene, a former acquaintance of mine uh, that I had gone to law school with Barack Obama was running for the United States presidency. Two of my friends that were close to him asked me to support him. 
Uh, I knew him, liked him enough, was agnostic to national politics. I was more focused on New York state politics. I raised him some money, gave him some money. Um, I didn't love his policies, which is why in a weird way, he, the, the decision to give Barack Obama money thrusted me into the national political fundraising arena. I went to go work for Governor Romney in 2012. Uh, and then, as I said, Jeb Bush in 2016 before working for Trump. But you, you're asking very good questions. So I want to answer, but provide mm, some. I mean, there's no, yeah, there's yeah. no, there's no harm right. in having supported Obama and then supporting Romney and then, no. and then wanting no, no. to, and then feeling like your allegiance is with the Republican party. When you were, so when you say that you had this kind of a rapport with Trump prior to politics, just from social circles in New York, what did you make of the guy during the apprentice years when you were hanging out at, I don't know, ball games? So he's a, he is a very charming guy, very charming guy. And he, he can be incredibly charming and ingratiating what he wants to be. Uh, and I had a good relationship with him. You know, I had a, uh, uh, rapport with him. One of his family members, uh, said to me that, uh, he said to them that I reminded him of Fred Trump, meaning I'd started with nothing and built myself up from something. And so he had a respect for that. And so we had a good rapport. I had a very direct, uh, you know, have his cell phone number, called him regularly. Uh, he asked me for advice on different things. I told him the truth. I didn't kiss his ass. I thought he was going in a direction that didn't make sense. I tried to explain to him why I thought that. Um, I guess the only thing that was a little weird about him and remains weird about him is the insecurities. You know, he's a morosely insecure guy. You know, I have my own podcast called Open Book where we interview people like Andrew Cuomo, Chris Cuomo, Kevin O'Leary, you know, you know, fun people like Barbara Eden, who's I, I dream of genie. And you get to know these people a little bit. They don't have Trump's insecurities. I've never met somebody as successful as Donald Trump, obviously ascended to the American presidency that is literally as insecure as he is. He also probably has a reading disability. He's not a good reader. He's not well read. And so when you are talking to him about things, if he feels he's outside of his realm, he starts to bully you. And so mm. I, I was in situations on the Trump plane. Somebody was trying to explain to him what the Sykes-Picot Treaty was, uh, the treaty that the the French and the uh, UK government cut on the evacuation of Palestine and the Middle East in general. And because Trump wasn't aware of it, he started bullying the intellectual that was explaining it to him. And I stopped the conversation and said, hey, Mr. Trump, do you remember Lawrence of Arabia when Peter O'Toole played Lawrence in the movie? Oh, yeah, that was a great movie. I said, well, you remember what the movie was about? <laughs> and then I was able to explain to him what the Sykes-Picot Treaty was without oh, him Jesus feeling- Jesus Christ, it's like te dealing with a toddler. It's like, well, you remember, well, the, remember well, that, well, that book we can't, read? Can't, you, can't tell him, you can't tell him things directly. I was in, it's not- not important to know the name, but I was in the Oval Office with a member of his team who was trying to explain to him the difference between a Shia Muslim and a Sunni Muslim, and uh, he didn't want to hear it. You know, and he and he he didn't want them to know that he didn't know it. And so this morose insecurity and this bullying aspect of his personality made him a a very bad manager. He has very poor executive management skills, and you know. I'll say something about him that people close to him really get. He does not like people, Josh. Doesn't like them, okay? Mm. Barack Obama, he's a little aloof, but generally likes people. Bill Clinton loves people. George W. Bush loves people. 
Ronald Reagan obviously loved people, but uh, this man did not like people. It's evident by the way he treats people. He's asymmetrically loyal to people. And I will say this to you, anybody that was independent, had their own business, had their own money, uh, had their own career like a general, spoke out against his nonsense. Uh, it was only the people that were beholden to him who, who had uh, economic relationship with him or had a uh, – sorry for those sirens. Unfortunately, <laughs> I'm, in New York I'm just wondering what city are you in? Are you in Beirut yeah, yeah, or I'm New York? I'm in New York. I'm in New York City, so you're going to hear a little bit of that in the background. Sorry for that. That's but right. anybody that had a relationship with him that was independent spoke honestly about him and said that he would be a threat to the American democracy and he would be a threat in his second term. I'm a lifelong Republican, but I'm a patriot first. I'm a partisan second. And there was no way that I could back Mr. Trump's second term. Um, and by the way, when he started attacking me, uh, it was sort of foolish of him because I was actually defending him on the Bill Maher show. Uh, one question was asked to me about the four congresswomen that he was berating on Twitter. I said, geez, I wish the president wouldn't speak like that. That's American nativism. They used to say that to my Italian grandmother to go back to the country she originally came from. That's American nativism. It's not something that the American president should be speaking. Bill Maher turned to me and said, well, He's going to light you up tomorrow on Twitter. I said, Bill, there's no way. I, I just spent my whole night defending him. He said, nah, you went seven for eight for Trump. You got to go 13 for 10, mm. which is mathematically impossible, Josh. <laughs> and so you got to do that. And since you didn't do that, he's going to light you up tomorrow on Twitter. I bet him dinner. I lost the bet. He was lighting me up on Twitter. But Josh, I'm a New Yorker, so and this is wait, I, this is when you you have, hold what position at what stage is no, this? No, no, I'm fired. So I'm you fired from fired. the White. I've been right. fired from the White House. I'm loyal to him on television. I'm a right. television pundit, uh, supporting him, defending him on a lot of different networks. Um, I'm two years in his defense. Fired on the 31st of July. It's August 8th of 2019. I'm two years in his defense. I said one thing on the Bill Maher show that he didn't like after saying seven things that I think he would have liked. And so he started viciously attacking me on Twitter. Well, I'm a New Yorker. You know, I'm not Ted Cruz or one of these crybabies, right? So I think I responded by calling him the fattest president since William Howard Taft, just because I know he hates being so fat. And, you know, he didn't like that. So he fired back at me and I said, oh, wow, you must be getting really old because these troll responses are slow and somewhat dim-witted, you know, because I know he hates being old. And then he went after my wife. I mean, who the hell does that? So once he went after my wife, I unloaded on him. I said, well, I was on that show with Stormy Daniels and my nickname for you is Tiny. After talking to Stormy, my nickname for you is Tiny Trump. Okay. Because we know that's got to be the reason for all that over-masculinity and uh, high heels. You know, he's got two and a half inch heels in his, in his uh, shoe and he's got the red orange war paint on his head and the different uh, uh, spray tans and so forth. This is a guy that's overcompensating for a lot of different things. And then the fight really started, but I'm a New Yorker. So if you're going to fight with me, uh, first of all, I don't like throwing the first punch, but if you're going to fight with me, I'm ready to go. No problem. And so I stayed on it until he lost that election. And as I like to point out to him and his friends, obviously you couldn't win the election without my support.
which is sarcastic, of course, but it's just it's just a way of fucking with them a little bit. Well, I so, mean, I'm glad that I'm glad that we're elevating the discourse in America, yeah. Anthony. This is important. These well, are important issues. Litigate. You can go. I can go high or low. We can talk about the Sykes Picos Treaty. We can talk about our. But Anthony, what's interesting to me is like you say, I know what uh, the nuclear triad is. You know, I'm not, I'm not an idiot, I, I but mean, I can also, I can also slap somebody around when they're slapping me. No problem. But when you when you say like he goes after your wife, like who does that? The answer to the question who does that is Donald Trump obviously does that and was well known to do things like that. Yeah, and there were no so that's surprises was, about his character. Among, so what, among, were you, what were you doing on in his administration in the first place? So one of my deep regrets. Uh, and again, I'm a person that's willing to own my mistakes in life. One of my deep regrets is that I let my pride and ego get the best of me, Josh. I, I grew up in a blue collar family, built two successful businesses. I got the offer to work in the White House for the American president. And I mean, and, there's no shame in this. I, I don't want to make it sound like I'm sort of trying to throw you under the bus here, but I am interested in what was going no, through. No, no, I, don't, I don't think there's any shame. I think there's a cautionary tale for people. I have a buddy of mine who was offered a very senior job. He met with Trump twice and he said, this is not for me and I'm not going to take the job. And I looked at him incredulously and said, why are you not going to take the job? He said, because I won't be able to handle Trump. We'll get into a fight and Trump will end up firing me and I won't be able to live with myself for that embarrassment. So I'm not going to take the job. I foolishly hit the override switch on all of that rational thinking I said, oh, no, I'm going to take the job. I'm going to get a chance to work for the just, American just president. Back up, just back up a little bit, Anthony, before you get a job offer from Trump, because I'm interested in your transition from financier to political act, actor. Like you you mentioned that you were working for Jeb Bush in 2016. Before that, you yeah, were working for Governor Scott Walker, all, right? Yeah, all volunteer work, all fundraising, fundraising volunteer. Right. But so I mean, you were a, you were a rich, super rich, super successful guy, well-known in financial – I mean, you'd, you'd achieved everything that you could want to achieve yeah. in business. And yeah. then, you know, you, you say you've been a lifelong Republican, but you hadn't been active in trying to seek political office or anything. You hadn't no, run for no, political I, office, no, but now I, you're no, on the I, Walker campaign. Uh, then that tanks. You go to the Bush campaign, the Jeb Bush campaign, that tanks. You end up on the Trump campaign. What was the play here? Like, you'd already been wildly successful in business. Did you see a future in, like, did you want to be Treasury Secretary? No, no, no. I, I didn't I didn't want to be Treasury Secretary. I could have potentially had the opportunity to be Commerce Secretary. I didn't think I was well suited for that. Um, my mistakes are uh, uh, mistakes of ego and pride. I had no interest in working for the White House. Trump won on November the 8th. On Wednesday, November the 9th, he said to me, I want you to come down to Washington and work with me. I said, no, I'm hosting Wall Street Week. I have a nice business. It's very flattering, but I have no interest. Then on that Friday, unbeknownst to me, he announced his 16-person executive transition team. I was on it. I then called him. I said, what the hell are you doing? And he said, ah, ha, ha, I'm the president-elect and you know, I'm your president now. You got to help me. And so I joined that transition team. I worked with Steve Mnuchin to help staff the treasury, among other things that we did together. And, you know, and then Trump offered me the job of being the White House liaison. Mr. Priebus, who was his chief of staff, 
did not like me. Now I'm a little bit of a. Uh, a I don't want to read. I honestly, it's it's yeah. so, it was so chaotic those days, and so chaotic even just yeah. to witness that I can't imagine the twos and fros between Prebus yeah, well, and I mean, Trump so and you. Anyway, that job was snatched away from you. Then you that job was snatched away from me. So then I called That's Trump and said, "This guy's an asshole." And when you're ready to get rid of them, hire me. I'll take care of it for you. And that was a big mistake. I shouldn't have done that. Do you remember the first press conference when you were appointed press secretary? Oh, very well. Yeah, no, that was a uh, that was a fun day for me. I uh, obviously, uh, you know, according to the White House, again, I don't know if this is true or not. Forty million people globally tuned in to watch that. So, um, uh, you know, and again, I can speak ex- extemporaneously, and I. I took the questions from the press to the best of my capability. Uh, this probably would be lost on most people, but the first question I, you know, I pointed to CNN because CNN had not been called on for three months by Sean Spicer. He was quote unquote mad at them and he was punishing them. And I was trying to restart the relationship between the white house and the press. Uh, but that probably also got me in trouble as well because I saw the press differently than Mr. Trump. We're, we're in a free society. I believe in the free press and the press's job is to hold people in office accountable at a result of which, you know, you have to have a relationship with them, whether you like it or not. How did you feel about a Saturday Night Live's impersonation of Sean Spicer? Well, I thought he was a, are we allowed to curse on this podcast or sure. not? Probably not, yeah. right? Yeah, I, thought, I thought Sean was one of the big dicks of all time. And my <laughs> nickname for him was Liar Spice. You know, every Spice Girl's got a nickname, so his was Liar Spice. Uh, I never met a bigger liar than him, you know, different from Previous. Previous is more like a Richie Cunningham from Happy Days. He tried to pretend he was from Wisconsin, but he was like a mob boss. He was a different guy. But Spicer, when they were making fun of him, I enjoyed it because I thought he was a complete asshole. And the only thing that I regret is I didn't get a chance to fire Spicer before he quit. The minute that Trump hired me, he said, "Holy shit, I quit because he didn't. Right, he didn't right. want." You and can't I said, well, that's me. Good. I'm out it's the one, door anyway. One, one less person I needed to fire, but he was a complete asshole. What? How shell shocked were you, or how unsurprised were you when eleven days later you were out the door? I, I, when I talked to that reporter, and this is somebody I just again part of the backstory knew the family for fifty years. My father had worked with his dad. Uh, in the construction industry on Long Island. He knew me. I knew him. I talked to him off the cuff. That is my mistake. I own that. Don't blame anybody but myself. When he told me he was running to CNN with the recording of our conversation, I said, okay, well, that's going to get me fired. And so that'll end my tenure. It'll obviously end my relationship with you and your family. If that's what you want to do, it's very transactional of you to do that. And he said, oh, no, I'm definitely doing that. And the next day he did that. Trump liked it. And you're probably not surprised by that. You know, what I said about Bannon and look at what Bannon is today, six years later, Trump liked it. But John Kelly felt that he needed to assert himself and he needed more order in the White House when he was named chief of staff. His first official act was to fire me. And I accepted it graciously. I shook his hand and I said, John, I hope we'll have the opportunity to be friends after this. And John and I our friends. I, he's come to my conferences. I'm about to go to the uh, Leatherneck uh, fundraiser with John and Karen Kelly. Uh, I didn't take it personally. I think I think John had the right to pick the people uh, that was going to work with him. Uh, the irony there was I probably could have helped him with Trump. Uh, he had a miserable 18 months, which is well documented. 
Uh, but that's life. Life goes on. I'm a big boy. You don't go into politics and expect uh, roses and wine. You expect to get your ass kicked a little bit. I got my ass kicked and uh, I moved on. You asked that's about neat. Saturday Night Live. I, 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 I liked it. I, I, didn't, I didn't mind them making fun of me. And I certainly love when they were making fun of Spicer. Anthony, we've only got 10 minutes left, so I want to do a rapid fire round. Okay. Uh, okay. You mentioned integrity, right? That being fundamental mm -hmm. to you. Uh, let's talk about people with integrity. Does Biden have integrity? Uh, yeah. I mean, look, there's different strains of integrity. He's a politician, but yes, I do think he's, he's by and large a good person. I've known him for 30 years. And I think I think the problem for President Biden is he's probably only has five good hours a day, Josh. You know, he's 80 years old. And so, you know, you know, I think things are slipping between the lip and cup after that in terms of concentration. But, yes, by and large, I think he has integrity. Does DeSantis have integrity? Um, he's a bully. You know, I, I'm not a big fan, to be honest. You know, I, I would say I don't know him personally to really evaluate the integrity piece. But when you're flying people, human beings around the country and sending them up to Martha's Vineyard for political purposes, uh, not a fan of that. That could have been my grandmother. I don't like that. So I think he's a bully. Who would you back? Who, who, who would be your preferred Republican nominee? Um, well, uh, you know, we have to see who emerges, you know, it may not even be the people that they're talking about right now, yeah, but, but if I you would were take, emperor of the I world would, and you could wave a man. Well, I would take, I would take Pompeo over to DeSantis. He's a way smarter guy. He's more, uh, well-versed CIA director, et cetera. He, you know, he's very smart guy. I know him a long time. I would take Nikki, uh, governor Haley over him. Um, she's a little bit more political than, uh, Pompeo. I think that's a little bit of a dangerous thing when you're president. You have to be very principled. I, I would take uh, Chris Christie over to them. You know, I think Chris Christie's a very talented guy and he's probably the right guy for our time. Um, I think his weight is a factor in these things. Probably he doesn't have the best look on TV. Uh, and I think that hurts him. Because remember, these are popularity contests mm. for the American people. It's not a hiring decision. Uh, but no, I think Ron is a little bit of a bully. And I think you got to have somebody in that job that's tough, but fair, but not a bully, someone that actually likes people. Will the United States be better in 50 years or worse than it is today? Uh, way better. Way better. Why? Yeah, you can't, because it's just this interesting country that goes through these ups and down cycles, uh, and there's just too much immigration, and there's too much renewal in the country. It's this vast experiment. It's what Lincoln said, it's the last best hope for mankind. And it'll it'll be way better because uh, despite the current political tribalism and all the different nonsense related to social media, uh, this country has a tendency to dip and then renew itself. It dipped and renewed itself in the 1970s into the 80s. It did the same thing right after the Civil War. The Civil War was a catastrophe for the United States. Look at what happened to the U.S. after the Civil War. The two world well, yeah, war. I mean, I was going to say, isn't the Civil War a counterexample to the idea that the U.S. can always bring itself back together from the brink? Well, I mean, it did, didn't it? I mean, the, you know, well, yeah, the, after the a union, war. Yeah, the Union held. The Union held, and so, so you know, I yeah, hope. That yeah, but I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't be very reassured if in fifty years we were looking back and going, "Yeah, it, it is, things are heaps better." Sure, we had to go through a massive civil war in the middle of the twenty-first century, but hope, now they're better. I hope. I don't. I hope we don't have to do that. But you know, the the, the country. You know, listen. You know, I'm sure the people that lived through the atrocity of that war don't feel this way. But a historian reflecting back on the country. 
the stain of slavery in the original documents and the ensuing war and the right to secede by the South, which was revoked by uh, White versus Texas in 1869. There was a lot that led up to that war, uh, but keeping the Union and keeping this continent as the one force, the imperialism of that, if you will, made it a very powerful country and made it a country where people like me who are from families of immigrants, uh, you know, my, my family didn't come you know, out of prison, like some of the Australians, but we were coming out of some very poor places in Italy. And, Don't worry, most uh, Australians we, came off off boats since the Second World War, as well as penniless. Yeah, no, I know they like. I know, Josh, I know they. I know they're all criminals, but I know they like to say that to people because they feel exactly. bad about the criminal. Exactly. We we like we wear we wear it as a badge of honor, Anthony. This idea yes. that we're all the same. I, I, look, I, Most of us are just I love, I love the Aussies. I, I get along with them. They know how to give it, and they know how to. They know also know how yeah. to take it. I yeah, love, I love it's the similarity between uh, yeah. between Italian no, Americans and Aussies. There's no America. no doubt about that. But my 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 thing is, this is an amazing country. It'll be made better. Um, we do need some sparky leadership, though. We need some transformative leadership. I'll submit to you something that you should think about. You're not an American, but the Americans have 27 amendments to their constitution. It's a 246-year-old country. That's 27 amendments. That's one amendment every 8.7 years. And yet we have not had a real amendment to the constitution since the 1965 Voting Rights Act. Mm. That is that is criminal. Uh, the, the, the Constitution was designed to be a living document to adapt with the times. Uh, we've allowed the politicians to make us very tribal. They do that through gerrymandering. The election campaign finance, this Citizens United uh, Supreme Court case is an atrocity for the United States. It's, it's, uh, it's not only it's just an atrocity. I mean, the way the money's getting spent and how it's getting spent is just, uh, to me, I think it will be eventually repealed the same way Plessy versus Ferguson was repealed by Brown versus the Board of Education. So, mm. uh, but these things have to happen. I predict that they will. And I, yes, and I do think the country will be made better. What's the, to the people who still support Donald Trump, what, why are they supporting Donald Trump? They're pissed. They, they have disaffected from the American society. The, uh, listen, I know those people. I grew up with those people. You know, when I was growing up, I was in an aspirational blue collar family. Uh, those very same people feel economically desperational. If you ask those people if their children are going to do better than them, they invariably say no. And I think it's a big issue. And Donald Trump is an avatar of their anger. He represents them by sticking a finger in the eye of the political business media establishments of the country. And that's why he has a very strong hold. You didn't ask me this, but I predict he'll win the nomination because if you have seven or eight guys, Josh, going up against him, he has a 15 to 20% hold on the party. How is, how, how are they going to beat him? If you have DeSantis going up against him, you know, one-on-one, -on -one, maybe he can beat him. But I don't think you can beat him with seven guys on the stage. Each one of those guys will get three to five percent, and Mr. Trump will get his twenty percent and win. Well, maybe they do what the Democrats did last time, and they all just agree to drop out at some exactly. point. Exactly, that, that's exactly yeah. right. See, they they did that so that uh, Biden could be compared to Bernie Sanders. Exactly, and he, and he beat him. And 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 the, and the, I hope they have the their egos in the right place to do exactly that, yeah. sir. Because if they don't do that, Trump will win. The last question, Anthony, if you could go back to 2016 and tell yourself something, what would you tell yourself? 
Well, listen, it was a mistake to work for Mr. Trump, but I am grateful that I had the opportunity to work for him. So I, I probably wouldn't would do it ever again. I would actually, yeah. Despite all the pain it caused me, and it almost caused me to lose my marriage. I think my marriage is stronger today. Uh, I think he gave me a platform to speak out against him, which sometimes in life that's what happens. Mm. Okay, um, but you know, here's here's what I would say to you. Um, you know, life happens to you. You have to react to life the way it happens to you. And I don't want to change anything about my life. I've been a very blessed person on planet Earth. I've had some setbacks. I'm a high profile profile person. So my setbacks get magnified more than my successes. But I got to tell you, I, I love love where I am and I'm grateful for all of the experiences. You know, I've read the presidential daily brief. I've flown on Air Force One. I did a press conference from the White House press room uh, I don't know. Not too many people could say they've done those things in life. It was a uh, it was a tough experience, but it's not one I would replace. Anthony, great to talk to you. Thanks for being yeah, on the same, show. Same here. I really enjoyed it, Josh. You're you're a great interviewer, by the way. No, you're, a no a, you're a little bit of a ball buster. You <laughs> remind me of the guy that does hard talk on uh, BBC. Oh you know, yeah. Like, well, that's a that's you know, a Steve. Yeah, yeah, that's a, yeah. That's you're you're a, you're a little bit. Of, you're very well researched, and you're. I used to call that BBC break balls when I went on that show. Yeah, you're a little bit of a ball buster like him, and uh, it's enjoyable. So Look, I hope you all in good. Back. It's all in good nature, and I know that you're the type. No, of no, guy. I, I, you're an Aussie. I appreciate that's it. Right, I, that's hopefully right. Hopefully, we'll get a beer together one day. <laughs> exactly. Give me all a right. call when you're in Sydney. Thanks, right, God bless. Bless.